We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. With me this week is Greg Karam. Greg, cricket batsman Kieran Powell of the Antigua Hawksbills. Got a tryout with the Mets this week. So, if you could invite a player or a figure from another sport to come and have a tryout with the Mets, or maybe even join the 2016 Mets, who would you pick? Well, I want a guy who has a skill that can possibly be transferable to baseball. So I'm thinking guys who can throw, guys who can swing, and I also want them to be young enough where they can be useful. So I'm going to go with uh, Jordan Spieth or Spieth, whatever, that golfer who uh, won the Masters in the U.S. Open last year. Is this going to be the Jeff McNeil thing? Yeah, yeah. The guy can swing, and he's only 22 years old. So there's time to mold that swing into something useful. And I think that it could be a you know, good addition. I like that. I hadn't thought about golf. I went in a slightly different direction. And I know the Mets already signed a bench coach or have a bench coach now. They promoted Dick Scott. But uh, for the purposes of this exercise, I'm going to make Jose Mourinho the New York Mets bench coach in 2016. <laughs> you might know him as ex-Chelsea manager most recently. Also has managed at Porto, Real Madrid, and Inter. Multiple-time uh, Champions League winner. Won the league last year with Chelsea, <laughs> and then rather unceremoniously got canned uh, over the, well, not the winter break, but over the holiday period. The best part of that would be any interview with him, he would just be talking endless amounts of shit about the other managers yeah, in right. the NL East. <laughs> I can just see him like getting really under like Don Mattingly's skin very quickly. <laughs> yeah. and, and so the Mets have a nice window here, too. So the next three years or so, you got all this young pitching cheap under contract if you want to look at it with like a three-year window like Mourinho is really good for the first two years when he comes to a new team there you go and then the third year it all goes bad so if you really want to capitalize on that you bring in Jose Mourinho he'll eventually yeah. undercut Collins to the point where Collins quits and he becomes the manager I'm figuring perfect and there's a couple of good things here um he has a well-known contentious relationship with the various I guess the soccer equivalent of sideline reporters so I just imagine him like making Steve Gelbs cry at some point during the season. <laughs> just being completely condescending or ignoring him or whatever. And uh, he's also, he'll fit in well with Mets fans because he uh, has also berated Chelsea's training staff for large portions of the uh, oh, yeah. of the season as well. Actually got their like, team doctor either fired or resigned, I think. Yeah, I think she resigned. Yeah. I can just see him and Keith getting along really well, like in a weird way. He seems like the guy that enjoys a, a little bit of casual chauvinism and a bit of red wine. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I can see that. Like those team flights could be fun for both of them, I feel like. Oh, yeah. This is episode 166 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation, New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. So we have, there's again, there's really not much to talk about. Um, we will start our late, belatedly start our road to the 2016 Amazing Avenue prospect list that is being shepherded by Greg Karam this year mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. And we're going to talk a little bit about the second best pitching prospect in the Mets system behind Steven Matz, who is still prospect eligible. So we'll talk a little Chris Flexen, Robert Gazelman, Gabriel Yanoa, and even uh, Marcos Molina in a little bit. 
We'll also look at the 2016 Mets as it stands. We are less than 40 days from pitchers and catchers reporting for baseball activities. We'll also look at the market for the hitters still left. Not that the Mets might necessarily sign any of them, but they could, theoretically. It might be a good idea. Also, yeah, okay, Craig. Also, the first projection systems have come out. Uh, the Zips. Uh, Zimborski's projection system over at Fangraphs posted this week, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Weave that into the conversation. Of course, we will answer your emails, give you some more pop culture suggestions to pass the time until spring training does start. A brief IFK Gothenburg update, some plugs from me, and that will be your podcast. But first, a topic, when I first out, set, out, set out the agenda this week to Greg, I left it off the list somehow. I'm not mm-hmm. entirely sure why, but uh, Mike Piazza, the Hall of Famer, Greg. He is. About time, right? Yeah, so I think I think the reason it didn't immediately jump to mind, there's two reasons. I was announced the day after we recorded, so it's you know it's been such a busy news cycle I've forgotten it in the previous week. Uh but I think moreover, I just don't I'm I like a Hall of Fame agnostic at this point. I just have no energy for the debates, whether it's back knee or war or big hall, small hall, ballot size. I just sure. I don't I don't like I, I'm just I, I'm just happy he's in. I'm happy he's in, sure. I like I'll probably end up going up for the uh, induction ceremony, I think. Yeah, why, why not, right? Why not? Um, Jess and I have a bed and breakfast up there we like to go to that's about just the right distance away from Cooperstown that it probably won't be packed that weekend. It's like yeah. 40 minutes, so that's perfect. I can catch a Binghamton game on the way back or over a long weekend. That's not a bad drive either. And yeah, it's, and it's, you know, hang out with some Mets fans, James K and his pops and whatever, <laughs> have a couple <laughs> beers at the Omegang Brewery. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I can't, like... It'll be cool. You know, this doesn't happen too often for Mets fans. Like, a guy goes in as a Met. No, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty much definitely going to go. I mean, it's it's only the second Met to ever go in. And uh, it's probably going to be a while before the next one. So got to capitalize on these moments. So this is, as you said, the, the right and obvious decision. Yeah. I think yes. it's been made more clear, and I'm going to plug mm-hmm. baseball prospectuses Coachella day here. Um. So over at Baseball Perspectives, we just rolled out a whole bunch of new catcher defensive metrics. And for years, you sort of heard like, oh, you know, Piazza can't throw. We know this. We always heard, oh, we worked really well with the pitchers. They liked throwing to him. And that's actually borne out in the data. Um, He is a, with the new catcher defensive metrics, by uh, Baseball Perspectives' wins above replacement, he is now a 75-win player. Mm. Where if you look at uh, Baseball References War and Fangraphs War, he is both around uh, 60 in both of them, which is not, you know, which we considered a borderline Hall of Famer. I think once you adjust for catcher, catch, catcher playing time and yeah. the catcher aging curve and everything else, um, I think it's still a clear Hall of Famer even by that standard. But it does sort of put his defense in a new light. No, it does, and it, this yeah, this stuff started leaking out. I think uh, maybe a year or two ago, when they were looking at the um, retro sheet uh, stats for the catchers, and uh, but it's nice to see it actually quantified now. Uh, and I think they should uh, start incorporating it across the board. And if, if you're going to be calculating war, um, you got to be, and we have these precise, relatively precise measurements of catcher framing and those kinds of things. Got to be able to bake it in uh, to the number. Otherwise, you can't just point to that number. And have it really mean anything. So I'm happy to see it uh, incorporated, and I'm happy to see it uh, make Piazza, you know, put him in a better light. Right, and we only have framing data going back to 1988, but it already is starting to be rolled out. I'm going to be a good company man here. It already is starting to be rolled out on the player cards at Baseball Prospectus. I think they'll finish updating them over the next day or two. But Piazza's is already fully updated, and I just want to roll out, roll out for you his 1997 season. Now, granted... This was sort of, I don't know if at, at the height of the peak offensive era, but certainly in a high offensive environment. However, that season, he finished second in the MVP voting. I forget to who. That might have been Larry Walker. He hit 360, as a catcher, he hit 362, 431, 638, and by our catcher defensive metrics, was 11 runs above average and was worth almost 11 wins above replacement. Oh my god. That's just ridiculous. Uh, he was really good. Oh, yeah. And it's weird. I don't... 
like I know he was the best player on sort of those maybe not every season but the, from those 98 to like 2002 Mets teams he was the best player overall and there was a season there you know Fonzie had a big season Olerud had a big season obviously but in total but I'm kind of a baseball hipster I think we all know and I never really like when I think of those teams and I think of sort of the players that that spoke to me as a fan like he falls behind like Ray Ordonez Fonzie Olerud Bobby Jones Rick Reed and I think what yeah. it comes down to is there's like for the truly great players, I think Piazza certainly one of them. He's one of the five best catchers in baseball history. There's like a distancing effect because they're so good. Well, yeah, it's, it kind of gets boring to say that the best player on your team, future Hall of Famer, is your favorite player on the team. Sure. Well, I mean, of course he, it is. Yeah, that's taken for granted. I mean, he's a 40 home run catcher. Yeah, that's ridiculous. You know, his 98 season with the Mets, granted it was just over half a season because he played some of it for the Dodgers and a little bit for the Marlins. He hit 348, 417, 607. Yeah. Like, he was such a good player. And it's it's so like, easy just to say, like, sort of the enduring image for me is, like, just that follow-through. Oh, yeah, with two hands on the back. Two hands, a slight uppercut in his swing, sort of brought it over the shoulder, almost, like, out of his shoe tops a little bit. Mm-hmm. get up on his toes and just, just be a laser beam to right center. That's like the Piazza image for me. Yeah. Yeah. Opposite field. He'd go opposite field a couple of times. I think he hit a couple in the playoffs against the Braves that were actually too hard off the wall that had limited him to a single. Yeah. I, I was there uh, at a, a game late in 2005 where he hit a game, a go-ahead home run in like the eighth inning in a game against the Braves. That's when they were still sort of in the mix. And uh, that was my last image of Piazza. And then also I was at the uh, first time, first game that he came back. You were at the Padres game where he almost hit three home runs? It was amazing. That's a great game because it's like, he hit the bomb. And it was off Pedro too. And granted, it was Pedro like, when it was 2006. Yeah. It was like, Pedro was pretty good until he got hurt that year it was still kind of like post-peak Mets Pedro right and he hit two absolute bombs off him and almost hit I think the third was off of like Aaron Heilman or something but yeah the, the, the third one yeah he, he almost hit three I was like oh this is great oh this is great I was like all right enough right. <laughs> <laughs> so you have so it is it controversial that he's going in as a Met I don't think so because uh the, the fan base He's more embraced as a Met than I think maybe as a Dodger, especially in his own mind. Um, and I mean, yeah, he, he said as much. But he had it also like a, a an ugly sort of departure from the Dodgers. So, I mean, I know that his some of his best numbers, I guess, came as a Dodger. I think he's probably accumulated more uh, war, you could say, as a Dodger. But his prime years, I just it just feels like he's more of a Met. I mean, obviously to me, because I, I was a, a Mets fan, Sure. But, uh, you know, with the, the, the playoffs and, and all that kind of stuff and just the way that he was embraced by the fan base, I think it, it makes sense. I think it comes down to like stats versus memories. You just want to be like, he had his best seasons as X. There's not much of an argument for him to go in as a Dodger. He played more games than Met, about 150 more games, so a season's worth, extra 900 plate appearances. He was better, about a 50-point OPS spread from LA to New York, positive for the Dodgers. 32. I'm just using baseball reference. I didn't go through and do the math with the with the metrics in, but his catching did decline uh, as he aged. So once he moved over to Shea, but 32 wins above replacement as a Dodger and 24 as a Met. But it doesn't. Again, it's how do you if you're going to go with caps? It's like how do you view this player? How will Mike Piazza be remembered? I think we remembered as a Met for a variety of reasons. I think that the player's own preference has a lot to do with it, too. I mean, he self-identifies as a yep. Met. I mean, ever since, like, Wade Boggs was going to, like, sell his cap to Tampa or whatever, um, <laughs> the Hall has made the final decision. But I do think they do play, take player the player's feelings into account. And Piazza, I think, was pretty clear probably the whole time. And you know what? I sort of talked about the distancing effect of him being truly great earlier. But I think I, I like him more in retirement in a weird way. 
Like, he just seems like he's really happy. He's like a happy guy now. He's like he's he at does. peace with himself. Yeah. Yeah, he's always uh, he always seems happy. And I think even the, the fan base has just come to appreciate him, like, even more so in retirement. Like, every time he comes back, it's just a big deal. I remember when they were um, put him in the Mets Hall of Fame. I was there for that. I was driving home and I like had to pull over to the side of the road because it was getting dusty. <laughs> <laughs> I just love him. Yeah, and it's like he just seems like he's like an old. He's like a he's like a cool dad now. It's just like his persona. He tweets about and he's like kind of like into the Met stuff. And then I'll tweet about like his, like there's a famous James K tweet about asking about his favorite wine and he's yeah. like, hey, I'll talk about my favorite wine. Sure, I'm Mike Piazza. <laughs> yeah. But, and it, I, some of this comes out in his autobiography too. Where he talks about he was sort of very, very like intense as a as a baseball player, sort of off to himself in a lot of ways. I think that's sort of I think he's mellowed a bit in his sort of retirement as well. That makes him more like an accessible dude. Yeah, why not? Like you know that the the hairstyles aren't out of control anymore, and no frosted tips. Like he's a guy you think that's like if you met in a bar, he would like buy you a drink. Yeah. Like, hey, Mike, big fan. Oh, yeah, sit down and have a drink. But I don't think you kind of got that feeling from him as a player. Yeah. I feel like he'd want to, like, listen to you and hear what you have to say. Yeah. It's Mike Piazza, Hall of Famer, Mets Hall of Famer. He's going to get his number retired because, you know, every little bit they can milk out of that. <laughs> yeah. the Mike Piazza experience they will over the last couple of years. So this is a good question. Who do you think will be the next Hall of Famer? This, this is sort of very open-ended to go into the Hall of Fame as a Met. <laughs> well, the uh, I guess the two options right off the bat are, or the two players that would be closest is, I guess, Beltran and then Wright. And I don't know. I See, this is another scenario where I don't know that a guy like Beltran is going to want to go in as a Met. You know, he's not embraced by the fan base as a whole, okay? You know, guys like you and me, we understand, we appreciate him. People listening to this podcast probably appreciate him, but I, I'd say the majority of, of Met fans have only one image of their head of him. And then it also had an unceremonious uh, departure towards the end, you know, with the surgery and the this and that. So I'll go with Wright because I, I'm just, I just hope. I hope that he's able to string together a couple more seasons and then... I don't think it's going to happen for you, Greg. For us, really, but I don't think it's going to happen for you. <laughs> I think there's Bel- a chance. There's a chance. Beltran, if he gets in, and he'll have the advantage, I think the battle will be a little less crowded when he's on there, and the electorate's going to be a little more saber-friendly as a whole. But you know, sort of seeing Edmonds and Kenny Lofton drop off on their first year... Yeah does make it a little more difficult. Now, Beltran's counting stats will be a little better than theirs, and he does have the ridiculous playoff performance. True. To fall back on to, which I think will get weighted. I mean, I think he's a Hall of Famer. I don't think he's a slam dunk Hall of Famer. Like, right now, if he retired today. But I don't think he's viewed that way generally. So it'll be interesting to see how that actually plays out. But I think he's the kind of guy that would go in with, like, the blank cap. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Because Kansas City wasn't great for him either the way he left there. He's not beloved there. He's not beloved in New York. I mean, I think, again, if you just want to split up the stats, he should go in as a Met if he goes right. in. But I don't think right. it'll play out that way. Me neither. I'm disappointed he didn't go for like an off-the-board selection. <laughs> what do you want to go with? Like, uh, Familia? <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> or even like, you know, Noah Syndergaard or something. Yeah. I don't know. I'll go with... It's so tough. Like, in a weird way, depending on how he ages, Reyes might have a a decent shot. I think he has a better shot than Wright at this point because he has an outside shot at 3,000 hits. Um, okay. Very outside. Um He's going into his age 33 season, and he has 1,900 hits. Uh, in the last three years, I could pull up Bill James' favorite toy, 
for this to try to do the math. But he hasn't hit, had over 180 hits since 2012, his first season in Miami, but he also hasn't played over 143 games since then. So It's, it's tough because his, his peak was, was great, but it wasn't like out of this world great. You right. know what I mean? He's never been super healthy. Uh, advanced defensive metrics, at least uh, defensive runs saved, hate him at shortstop for the last half decade or so. But I feel like 3,000 hits is still enough of a number that if he kicks around until he's 39 as like a backup middle infielder, sort of the Omar Vizquel route, mm. I could see that happening. Well, he's going to have to stay out of trouble. <laughs> yes, he's going to have to stay out of trouble. That's how you want to define, you know, choking your wife and throwing her through a uh, yeah. <laughs> sliding glass door at your Hawaii hotel. Yeah. But he would be. I, I I would hazard a guess that he'd be far from the only wife beater in the uh, Hall of Fame at this point. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't have any uh, strong evidence to support that, but I probably wouldn't take much more than a Google search. Or just saying Ty Cobb. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's who pretty thought. much just beat up everyone he came across in his. Uh, and may have killed a man. And may have killed him. So from that unhappy topic to slightly happier topics, Mets prospects, Greg, it's prospect season. It is. We're in the thick of it. The Amazing Avenue. When is this going to go up? I have no say in this. So when is this going up? Uh, You decided when it's starting? uh, It's going to start when I finish, (laughs) which uh, is good. I I have six more players to write up, so I'm I'm thinking uh, maybe... A week or two. All right, that's good. The votes are in. We did it very similarly to last year. I am somewhat... I'm not verboten. I can I can say what I want on this show. This is my show. Yeah. Hmm. But Greg, we're doing the player caps. We're doing 25 that we decided on? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, just like last year. So very similar to last year, yeah. Gonna roll it out in, in fives and then uh, do an individual one for each of the top ten. Sure. And it's the same the same system as last year. I think we had votes from myself, Greg, Steven Sippa, and Lucas for the four that submitted this year. Yeah. Okay. But that's all sort of like, you know, bureaucratic stuff. For the purpose of this podcast, we're gonna talk about the second best pitching prospect in the Mets system and who that might be. This was intended to be a Chris Flexen video scouting session. Much like we did with Gabriel Yanoa last off season, I did not watch the game we were supposed to watch. No, you didn't. I've been writing stuff. About so am I. <laughs> I've been I've been waist deep in Excel spreadsheets with catcher defensive metrics for a week. I've been dreaming about Jesus Montero. Come on, man. Yeah, well, I had to. I had to watch it because I had to write up flexing. Sure. So what were your impressions of this August 8th start against the Charleston River Dogs? I'm well, curious. this was his first start back at Savannah, so... Right, he had, he had been sort of rehabbing-ish at the lower levels. Right, so he, he's uh, he's had surgery, Tommy John surgery in July, and by August 8th, he's back on the mound in Savannah, which is a pretty, pretty good turnaround. And uh, he looked good to me. I hadn't really... I hadn't seen him pitch at all before, but... He has a he is a pretty pretty solid fastball, which supposedly gets up to ninety five miles an hour. Um, it's got some movement on it, got a little arm side tail on it, at least from what I saw, and got a lot of weak contact on it. Um, and then he also has a really nice curveball that he threw some. I mean, really really good curveballs in this start. I mean, even uh, when I saw him in Savannah in 2014, I mean, he had absolutely no feel for the fastball in that start. But he still maintained a really good feel for the curve. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't an erratic. It wasn't that erratic. Like, I mean, he he threw like four to five excellent curveballs, and the other ones were in the area. You know, I mean, they were decent. They weren't disasters. Uh, so that's like a, that's a pitch that I really think is is. You know, it's 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 a major league, you know, quality uh, curveball down the road. So that's his primary second uh, secondary offering. He also mixed in 
a change-up, a couple change-ups. Um, they look okay. Clearly not one of his uh, favorite pitches. Although it's tough for me to distinguish on video. I mean, just... It's, it is. It can it's be. It's really hard. He also throws, like, like a crappy slider that... The, the slider, I, I mean, I thought it was a slider. I'm pretty sure he was trying to throw a slider, but... Uh, it uh, it was either that or a failed curveball, but I really didn't think so. So, I think that that's a work in progress. So, but like, would it all add up to? I mean, it's a pretty decent profile there. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you wanna, if you wanna be a little bit optimistic, you can say, okay, it's a plus major league fastball and a potential plus major league curveball. That's yeah. a nice start for a guy that's still only twenty one, even right. after losing a year to Tommy John surgery. That's kind of the way I looked at it. I mean, it, it seemed like there were some things that he could clearly work on but like it's a really nice uh, starting off point and i feel like uh you know as long as he stays healthy i think that he's he's probably going to pitch into majors in some fashion uh whether it's out of the bullpen or you know as as a reliever so i i'm optimistic on it just based off of obviously just one start but um you know and that's you know that's a that's a big shout for a dude that hasn't pitched above a ball yet right so so now that you've watched the start you like him more than uh Gazelman and Yanoa? It's really tough. Um, so it is that it's that he hasn't failed in Double A yet, right? Right. It's it's tough for I mean it's tough for for me to say that. Uh, the, I, I I still really like Gazelman. Uh, I, I, watching his start, it's just he's got he's got the pitches. It just it doesn't doesn't it doesn't add up to swings and misses uh, that often. And I think it's part of it is that he's just so reliant on this two-seamer fastball that just he pounds it at the bottom of the zone. He, th- he throws it fairly accurately. I mean, he's, he's got good control of it. Uh, it's all over the bottom of the zone. But he's just throwing it like over and over and over again. And I think he has, he has a really good curveball uh, that he could probably mix in a little bit more. And the change-ups weren't bad he just probably needs it, to it, it, yeah if, it, i would say it could get to major league average yeah i mean it's pro it's work in progress but i just i it was it was confounding to me that he wasn't able to generate more swings and misses um so i'm not really sure how to diagnose that but i still think that he has I mean, a well, shot at pitching in the majors as well i mean we had this fight with toby at our live show yeah, at pitch talks in September about sort of this you know Flexen versus Gazelman versus you know and you know how much does K rate matter at this point and Flexen's posted pretty good ones wherever he's been right you know all in all so the funny thing though that that I wasn't entirely aware of is and I'm confirming actually right now yeah so that's right I knew he was a year older than him but uh there's not like a huge because Flexen was a like a 17 year old when he was drafted as a uh, as a prep pick. Yeah, he was young, but he's only at this point a year younger than Yanoa and about a year younger than Gazelman, both of whom have pitched in Double A now. Yeah. You have to imagine Flexen will start next year, probably in St. Lucie. Right. And then sort of proceed from there. You know, probably in the half-season, half-season plan. Well, look, you know, you know, and Gazelman had uh, similar situations. They both stalled out in double-A, and it's mostly on account of them not being able to miss enough bats. Now, they are also two pitchers that are working on developing a third pitch uh, that's more useful. So, if you want to prescribe, you know, say that they were maybe they were working on those uh, those third pitches a little bit more, rather than just focusing on you know trying to get this guy out, you know, I, I, that's possible. Um, so this this year is going to be a big show me year for those guys, and just to see if they can finally take that you know next step and get out of Double A. And of course, the other thing too, if you assume which is probably not a terrible assumption. All three of these guys are relievers in the end. Flexen might be best positioned for a late inning role, given he's got a little more fastball than, certainly more fastball than Gazelman, probably a little bit more fastball than Yanoa, and will flash sort of a, a plus curveball. Now, Gazelman will do that too. I think Gazelman's curveball is more advanced. It's more consistent, more when, consistent. He, when he chooses to use it. Mm-hmm. And again, sort of as an outsider here, you look in and are like, 
is this like a, a team directive, a pitching coach directive? You just don't know. Like if Gazelman comes out next year, maybe repeating double A, maybe not um, throwing the curveball 25% of the time and just like ghosting dudes, would I be shocked? No. But it hasn't happened yet, so. Right. And I saw of- I saw a start, you know, is where he was just throwing slider after slider after slider after slider. And I was like, what are you, what's what's going on? It was almost like, well, what, is, what is happening here? But like, it's clear that he was working on that pitch. Right. I mean, I said it before too. I saw, you know, it three times this year. He looked like three different pitchers. And I've talked with, uh, with Al Scarupa, formerly a BP, now uh, an Oakland A's amateur scout. Because he saw, like, the good Yanoa start that I saw. So when you pop in and see that, you're like, oh, this guy can... He needs to work on some things, but he could be in a back end of a major league rotation if you popped in for that start. Mm -hmm. If you saw him like I did, and again, when I saw him in New Hampshire, it was freaking full-on, like, Fargo-ass cold there. It was, like, 31 degrees at game time. And not much, but I saw him, you know, a second time in New Britain at the end of the, towards the end of the season, and it looked like a dude that, well, like an average double-A starter, nothing special. So you just don't know. Right. It does a lot of time depend on when you see these guys. Yeah. So I, I still take uh, Gazelman as my second best prospect in the system. I, just... think, I think that's probably where I'll end up falling, just because, I mean, he didn't get would you like him to have a better K rate at Double A than he did? He he struck out forty nine batters. He faced three hundred eighty seven batters. Yeah, not a great K rate, but he didn't get beat up at the level. You know, he'll repeat it in his age twenty two season, which is totally age appropriate. And I'm curious to see him. I may see him early because the Hartford team is going to be playing on the road the first seventeen games this season. Because the stadium's not done. That's why I may be driving oh. a little bit more than I planned in April, in addition Oops. to all like the amateur stuff I'm going to see in Connecticut. But, yeah. I'm curious. It's interesting. Like, one of these three guys will break out. I just don't know if I can guess the right one. <laughs> right. I, I definitely... These are all going to be big years for these guys. Sure. I think there's, it's good. it is very much a show-me year because there's other dudes coming hopefully at some point they can pitch <laughs> right i'm most excited about flex and, and what he can do i think that's fair but i think again we haven't seen him fail at higher levels yet right and i don't want to say that gazelle and you know have failed at double a yet but we haven't sort of seen them struggle in the same way right right, right. one more topic to cover we are less than 40 days from pitchers and catchers reporting to St. Lucie for spring training-like things. Um, but as far as like off-season stuff, look at the Mets are done, Greg. Yeah. They need a right-handed hitting outfielder and a relief pitcher, probably. Um, you know, they signed, as we know, Alejandro Diaz to a one-year deal. This week, interestingly, or since we last podcasted, I believe, Denard Spahn side with the Giants for three years and $31.5 million. And Gerardo Parra today signed with the Colorado Rockies for three years and $26.5 million. Would you rather have either of those players on that deal over Alejandro de Aza? Um, wait, what was the second one? Gerardo Parra, three years and $26.5 million. Oh, Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> More than I expected. Maybe not that one. Uh, you know, on those deals, I really would probably rather have Diaz. Really? Uh, yeah. Really? I'm, I'm not. I'm not a huge uh, Denard's fan. I mean, I've, I've said before that I like healthy Denard, like healthy young Denard's fan. Really, like Minnesota Twins Denard's fan. I guess is where I'll, I'll make sort of the delineation. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I mean, he had some good years in the early years uh, with the Nationals, and but when he's healthy, he's very good. But yes. I just, I'm not convinced it's that not he's going to be healthy. I mean. If they offered him like three thirty six, he probably would have taken that over the Giants deal. I don't feel like that's unreasonable. I, it's not unreasonable, but I, I, I'm talking about in a holistic sense, you know, t- taking into account all finances and everything like yeah. that. I just, I just, I just don't think that that would have been the good, 
a good fit for the Mets. I'm not really willing to lock that down for three years when you've already got some money committed to Lagaris. And uh, if you're going to do it, you know, if you're going to go do it, go big or go home. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if well, you're that's, gonna, that's that's a good point, Greg. That is a good point. And so the the Zips projections came out for the Mets this week. Yeah. If you just want to look at sort of the raw position by position, it comes out to around 87 wins. The actual projection comes out to 84, basically because it's like a raw wins above replacement versus playing time because they had three wins from center field, but those center fielders and Daz and Ligaris getting 1,000 plate appearances doesn't work that way. Right. And five games behind the Nationals, which is better than last year, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And whatever the Marlins takeover part two is going to do. Right. Because that's like well, a thing now, apparently. Well, I mean, it's know, not really a thing. Chen is going to take them all the way. What is it with sort of the national media and the Marlins? Like, I don't quite understand. Last, last year, it didn't like, make like any Jonah sense. Jonah Carey, John Morosi. Okay, John Morosi, fine. But Jonah Carey, like, predicted them to make the playoffs. They're not... Like, they're talking like... I saw a quote of, like... We think Mar- or from Mattingly, I think we think Marcelo Zuna can be a 30-30 player this year. Your owner hates him and kept him in the minors for half of last season <laughs> to keep him from like arb- keep an extra year of arb control. Yeah, like, yeah. come on, it's a complete train wreck. It is. It's like we, it think, Jose- we think Jose Fernandez and Wei Yin Chen compete with any team in the NL East. Like, okay. That was the most confusing thing about last year, but I don't think we're going to have a repeat of that this year. I'm not too worried. I think I should just play, like, a Freeze Pops Shark Attack under this entire segment. Or, like, the Marlins Takeover. Either that or Marlins Will Soar by Scott Stamp. <laughs> One of the two. I might do this in post. We'll see how it goes. Okay. But, I mean, the Mets can still, like... I feel like 84 to 87 wins is a fair projection for the 2016 Mets. And people yelled at me on Twitter when I said this. Yeah, I mean it's it's um... like they're so so they're better than the 2015 team if you look at the 2015 team from April 1st to July 27th. They're better right. than that team, but that team was a 500 team. I'm a little bit more optimistic, I would say. So where, so, so 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 I'll say this then: where are the extra wins? I, it's just like we're adding up the wars. We always do this when we do with projection systems. We're adding up right. the wars. But where are yeah. the extra wins coming from off the Zips projection? Who's outperforming that? Because you've got three wins from David Wright. Who knows how many games he's going to play? you got four wins from your catcher spot. And look, if Darno's healthy, great. Yeah, I mean, well, look. I mean, you got however many wins Conforto gives you in left. Okay, that's that's almost a hundred percent upgrade. Sure, it's left field profile, so the, the offensive bar there is high. But yeah, I'll grant you that. I think, I think I said before on the show, if you told me a Met got top ten MVP votes in two thousand sixteen, I'd probably bet on Michael Conforto. Yeah, and and you have hopefully you have right for a little bit more than you had him last year. You have, but the thing so. Where does it come from? It also comes from the fact that they're not going to be rolling out Johnny Manel, Eric Campbell, uh, Danny Mono. Is the bench really that? I, mean, I still think they're a little thin. I don't think they're that thin. I mean, they're they're who's, probably thinner in the outfield than they yeah, are. Yeah, who's in the, the fifth infield. outfielder right now? Yeah, no, that's that's an issue. I think it is Eric Campbell. I tried Daryl Siciliani. I mean, they're going to sign a right-handed hitting outfielder. I think we know this, whether it's Stephen Pierce or somebody else. Which is somebody, right? Which is, I mean, which just goes to show, I, you know, Cespedes would be a really good addition to this team right now. Interesting that you should say that, Greg. Is it? Is it? Yes. <laughs> so there's a whole, and you know, Sandy Alderson said some stuff about Yohannes Cespedes specifically. They're taking Mets fans to task about him not resigning it. Yohannes Cespedes in the context of the Mets not spending more money. And look, they're probably going to end up spending a little more money. 2016 opening day payroll than they did in 2015. I'm not going to give them a fucking victory lap for that on the podcast when they're still essentially a bottom 10 payroll. But if you're saying like guys like Cespedes and Upton aren't fits, but you're committing a fair amount of money slash playing time to Alejandro de Aza, right. it would be arguably worse than either in center field defensively. Or you're, you want Ligaris to win the job back. And look, even in his good year in 2014, he didn't hit righties. 
And in his good year in 2014, he probably didn't have a torn UCL, which totally does not require surgery, you guys. You know, Justin Upton and Yohannes Cespedes would be reasonable moves on a longer-term deal because you've got two more seasons of Granderson. So if you yep. sign Upton, you can play him in right and play Granderson in center. Versus a caddy in late innings, however you want to work that out based on what the team you're playing's bullpen looks like. So on a shorter deal, if they will take a three-year deal or a one-year deal, maybe in Upton's case, it's a no-brainer. I don't know if it happened with Cespedes, but Upton, you know, I could, if the market, I could theoretically see him taking a one-year pillow contract, given that he's younger, the 2016 class is worse than the 2015 free agent class. Yeah. And try to cash in there. And you give him a one-year deal. You can always claw back the uh, pick you lose this year, which I think is number 30 now after the Marlins signed Wei Yin Chen. So... Why? Yeah, and look, why, look, people, why people, isn't this happening, Greg? I don't know. People why? get you know, and people get hurt too. So there's going to be ample playing time available. So it why is it not happening? Is because I mean, it's got to be money. Because at this point, it almost looks like Cespedes is actually going to be available for probably like a four year deal. You know, and, and and it sounds like four years and probably something south of eighty million a year uh, in total. So at that at those numbers, I think if he takes a four year deal, be like four and I mean four and eighty eight. That seems reasonable. Even if it is that, yes, it does. I mean, four any almost any number of four years seems very reasonable to me. And it, it's it's gonna it's gonna be a meltdown if he does have four years somewhere. Hashtag meltdown on Twitter dot com. It's gonna be a meltdown. Yes. Because, yeah. Look, yeah, you got you got Granderson is older. You know, he had a thumb thing towards the end of last year. He he might not be healthy for a full year. Even if he is, you you, know, you roll him out in center. Uh, I think the bat will you know, the bat will carry it, and it would add it would add a ton of value to the team. It's an obvious move that could help the team upgrade the team, but it's not happening for. I mean, you can make reasons. a legitimate. You can make a legit. You can make a legitimate case at this point. My mic's like acting weird for some reason. Um, that Brandon Nemo is their fifth outfielder right now. Their best fifth outfielder. Hey, Zips kind of like them. Zips, Zips likes prospects. They like Dilson Herrera. They like everybody. Yeah. But it is... For some reason, I saw somebody tweet at me about Dilson Herrera, about uh, Brandon Nemo's swing tweaks. And like, look. This year? No, about just like the the, the I make running jokes about uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Brandon Nemo constantly tweaking. Like it's been twice. He's made two fairly major changes to his swing. And yes, I have said on the show that that you don't see that in like top tier hitting prospects making major change, uh, major changes, making significant changes to their swings twice in their minor league career. That's sort of the your swing is your swing kind of thing. But the the more damning thing to me. This is a time of year where there's nothing to write about. So you'll see stuff come out in the New York press related to prospects. I saw a couple of different pieces. I think one from Ken Davidoff and one from somebody else sort of going through the top Mets prospects. And, you know, these are guys that are better connected than me, certainly. And that could be useful sources to dump positive information about your prospects into the media. And they could not find anyone to say on the record internally in the Mets that Brandon Nemo is a slam dunk everyday regular somewhere. That should be concerning. Well, you don't know how they came up with that article, but uh, it wasn't a great year. Although, look, I mean, he, he came back in, in Vegas and he put up a 390 on base, and there's some things to like. In and, Vegas, and, you say? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's some. Uh, I, there's an opera, There's some areas that he could improve up upon that could take him to a, to being a useful major league piece. Uh, you know, such as getting more aggressive and hitting counts and things like that. Mm, I agree. We'll now move on to your emails. Before we do emails, we do housekeeping. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode one hundred and sixty-six. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on the internet at AmazonAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AmazonAvenue. Or join our Facebook group at Facebook.com 
slash Amazing Avenue. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio. And you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can also find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download talkradio.com slash Amazing Avenue. Or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Greg Karam. You can follow him on Twitter at Greg Karam. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. My 10-year-old MacBook, which I'm still using, may be crashing right now as we record this show. So getting the email... Export, export. Export. Getting the emails back up is being a bit of a uh, problem right now. But generally speaking, when my computer's working and not giving me the little rainbow ball of death as it is right now, you can, in fact, email the podcast at podcast at Amazing Avenue. Come on, baby. Audio.com. <laughs> nope, not happening. It's just not happening, Greg. I got to be honest. Your email's not coming up or the podcast is crashing? No, I think it's still recording. It's just I'm getting the rainbow ball of death. Well, I have the emails if you want me to read them. Oh, this will be good. Yeah, read the emails. Yeah. Okay, so our first email is from Calvin. And uh, Calvin that's not, said... That's not the order I had them in, but that's fine. Oh, oh sorry. Oh, no, no, continue. That's fine. Oh, uh, okay. You know, you know, you, really you want to run the show? It doesn't matter. Just read the emails. <laughs> I mean, I can't do anything about uh, first... it, so... <laughs> first email is from Calvin. Under the subject, legendary folk hero Wilmer Flores. So I did have a note about this. There's only two acceptable designations for Wilmer Flores. It's my main man, Wilmer Flores, or future playoff hero, (laughs) Wilmer Flores. I'm still sticking with that. It's a new year, but I'm still sticking with that, but continue. Okay. Well, he says, hello, podcast team. With the additions of Neil Walker and Estrubal Cabrera to the team this offseason, I have just one question. Why won't the Mets let Wilmer Flores be great? Gives us our uh, Wilmer Flores' 2015 season stats. He gives us a Judable Cabrera, 15 well, you stats. Read the emails. Like, oh, okay, Wilmer Flores, 2015. You can just give the triple slash. It's fine. I'm stripping. I'm skipping it. <laughs> <laughs> he says maybe I'm wrong, and Flores will start at shortstop instead of Cabrera. But it seems to me like those moves were made so that they could start up the middle, Walker and Cabrera. But in the end, they brought in two guys that just turned 30 who played eerily similar to Flores last year who just played in his first full season in the majors. In a vacuum, these aren't bad moves, but when you have a 24-year-old Flores who acquitted himself fairly well, why bury him by spending money and trading assets to bring in two 30-year-old guys? Especially when you can just let a 30-year-old player uh, – especially when you just let a 30-year-old player walk to pick up a compensation, compensation pick. I could see one of them – I could see one of them if you don't think Dilson is ready, but I don't get why both moves were needed at this time. With the trading of Nice, it necessitated re-signing Bartolo Colon. And I get that we all love Bartolo, but that was money that could have been gone elsewhere. And the same thing that I just said about Bartolo could also apply to Cabrera. It also feels very lateral when taken in context, and it just, feels, just leaves me feeling very blah about this offseason so far. I would have liked to have seen the team make some moves that show they are committed to trying to get back and hopefully win the World Series this time around. Maybe it's just me, but Neil Walker and Jubal Cabrera don't exactly scream, we're going to the World Series. Thanks for the podcast, Calvin. This is great. We should use every week because now I can just mute my <laughs> mic and scarf down all these french fries my wife brought home for me while you read the emails. This is perfect. Um, I don't think anything Calvin said in that email is wrong. Yeah, I mean, so I get. I don't know. I mean, are you excited about committing a f- to a full season of full playing time for Wilmer Flores at shortstop? No, but I don't think they made a meaningful upgrade over that either. Like Walker for Murphy, you can you can make a case that Neil Walker will be better than Murphy in two thousand and sixteen. Yeah, and it's less of a long term commitment. There's all stuff I said on the show before. You keep Dilson Herrera in play for twenty seventeen. And you have more middle infield depth because if somebody gets hurt, you can always bring up Pereira as well. Um, just, it's just nothing exciting about Astro Cabrera. I've said this on Twitter before. I, 
I feel like I've forgotten three separate times this offseason since they signed him that Estrebel Cabrera's on the Mets. <laughs> but he's, well, I he's think he lowers I think he raises the floor. Does he? I mean, yeah, maybe, but there's like collapse risk in there. He's not young. He's not a good defender at shortstop. The skill set is similar to Flores. You know, it's a slugging heavy, bad defensive shortstop. Yeah. And he's a switch hitter. Which is nice, I guess. And look, I understand why they did this. I wrote some of my transaction analysis at Baseball Prospectus. It's a, this is not about Wilmer Flores. It's about David Wright. If David Wright gets hurt, now they can slide Flores over to third. Yeah. Yeah, and look, I I think that it's it's a good. I think it's going to be good for Flores to be able to be put into better situations, maybe you know, playing against a lot of lefties and that kind of thing. I think he's going to be very valuable in that kind of role. I just don't think they'll strictly platoon him. I mean, uh, Cabrera doesn't have much of a split. We know Wright matches lefties. Are they really going to platoon him with Neil Walker? They're no, platoon him I mean, with Lucas Duda? They're going to find him spots to play. I mean, I mean Wright's not going to play yeah, every I mean, day. He'll find 350 plate appearances somewhere just because someone's going to get hurt, probably, if nothing else. Right. And yeah, it does. You're moving Flores to your bench. I think is you know, against your lefty slider, dick high slider dude for a late inning pinch hitting appearance isn't the worst thing in the world either, assuming he can make that transition. But, you know, they spent a not insignificant amount of money on Cabrera. They could have gone elsewhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about the opportunity cost of the booth and the money that involved, I'm not going to argue with you there. Rather see that money packaged up and Diaz's money packaged up and go to Cespedes, obviously, but not happening. No, it is not. All right, Craig, you read the next email. Oh, Christ. All right, let me pull that back up. All right, our next email is from Eugene. Subject is trading Jerry's Familia. Jeff and co, I have a few hypothetical questions for you guys. One, given the very unsaber demand for top quality closers this offseason, what would the Mets get back if they theoretically flipped Jerry's Familia? Are we getting anything close to a Kimbrel-type package? Two, if we trade Familia and replace him with a combination of, say, Bastardo and Tyler Clippard, how would that change our expected moving total for 2016? Thanks, and great jobs as always, Eugene. So for part one, I would say they could get a lot back for Jair's familiar right now. Especially uh, under team control, yep. reasonable cost. So he doesn't have the track record that Kimbrell does. He's probably not as good a late-inning reliever as Craig Kimbrell. But he has less miles on the arm, for starters. And, again, more team control. So they're going to get something akin to a, a top-tier prospect, another top 100 guy, a useful utility player, and a, a prep pick or... You know, international free agent type flyer, like the Padres got for from the Red Sox. Yeah, sure, you can absolutely make that trade. Here's the problem with part two: the <laughs> pen is now terrible. Yeah, it's from really a, from, bad. There's a there's a chance in that scenario where that that could the way things work with leverage and and the type of that could cost you like six wins. Yes, I don't disagree with that. In a worst case scenario, I think it costs you six wins. So let's but, go to, we're going to play a little game now on the podcast, Greg. Okay. So, sort of, you talk about chaining and like who's going to take Jair's Familia's innings if they trade him. And the way I want to do this oh, is I'm going to go through what? <laughs> no, good. <laughs> I'm going to go through the Mets projected bullpen for 2016, and you're going to give me a percentage odds if you want to go in that direction. That that pitcher posts an ERA over four in 2016. <laughs> I know, reliever ERA, maybe not the best way to delineate pitcher value, but I want to keep it fairly simple. So, we'll start with Jairus Familia. Odds that he posts an ERA over four in 2016 for our baseline. Um, 5%. I think that's fair. Short of him being like injured, essentially yeah. pitching hurt, right? And, and small samples because he's not pitching that it, but still, 
Right, which could happen because, you know, he's, uh, he's not, uh, he has a history of elbow issues. I don't want to say a history of elbow issues, but he's had elbow issues in the past. For the last two seasons, he's been healthy, I would say. I think 5% is reasonable. So now we'll go to his, to the Mets, uh, sort of heir apparent eighth inning guy, Addison Reed. Who I believe had an ERA might have had an ERA over four in total last year. <laughs> Certainly did in several years before that. What are the odds that Addison Reed has an ERA over four in 2016? That's probably like 35%. I think that's reasonable. Like, I like Addison Reed, but that's in play. Yeah, it's totally in play. We'll move on to sort of our incumbent, I guess, seventh inning guy, Hansel Robles. Oh, jeez. I'd yeah. say it's like a... Probably like a forty-five percent chance. I think he's pretty close to even money. That's yeah, fair. I, I was yeah, it's say. pretty close to even money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, this is a fun game. It is. <laughs> Getting you excited about the 2016 Mets season, Eric Goodell. Um, probably, probably fifty percent on him. Yeah, I guess Goodell always feels like. I don't say always, but it does feel in some ways like one of those guys that's either, uh, he's one of the effective or injured types. Yeah. Like if he's healthy, he's effective, but he's just not healthy enough to, right. To make it work. Carlos Torres, who I guess is probably in the opening day of whole pen. Oh, jeez. Uh, I'll go 45. I'll go 45. So, yeah, we're all basically saying that these guys all have like median projections around <laughs> a 4.0 ERA. This is not good. There's going to be a lefty in there. I guess it's going to be Jerry Blevins. Yeah, he threw six innings last year, I think. He also broke his forearm twice on his yeah. pitching arm. It's a weakness. Mm. I think that is why you... Uh, you maybe don't trade Jairus Familia. Beyond Jairus Familia being really cool, and I don't want to be like, I'm not going to like stand up and dance to whatever music Addison Reed comes out to in the ninth inning. <laughs> As Greg Karam can attest to, I feel like. <laughs> because he was he was shuffling around with me. <laughs> Three in the World Series. Love that song. Hmm. Those are emails. Once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazonavenueaudio.com. Now we'll do as we do in 2016. Give some pop culture suggestions. And Greg Karam, you indicated to me that you have like a week's worth of material here. You've done some <laughs> research, so I'll, I will defer to you to start. Well, I kill. I, I mean, this is how I kill time. Yeah, but uh, I mean, since since you first said that the show I was going to recommend, which is Making a Murderer, is taken off on Netflix. I mean, everybody knows about that now. Um, but if you didn't know about uh, make or if you've seen Making a Murder and you liked it, there is another similar uh, true crime uh, documentary out there. You can find it on I think YouTube. It's called The Staircase, and it's another um, documentary t- style where they're in with the uh, defense attorneys basically from the start, and it's it's very similar to Making a Murder, and in many ways it's actually more it's actually better, just in terms of the story. Um, and it's about a guy who supposedly murdered his wife um, at the bottom of a staircase. And, I, and so I, I would totally recommend that because if you like that, you're going to like this just as much. Um, I can go on, but if you no, that's all you want a week is fine. Okay. So I was going to, I was last week was looking through sort of like Hulu's Criterion collection, going back on sort of my film school days to try to come up with a, with a suggestion for this week. And I was going to recommend originally Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout from the early 70s, which kicked out, uh, kicked off the new Australian cinema and really kind of even invented a national national cinema for Australia, uh, him along with uh, Peter Weir and, and Jane Campion. And there's a through line from that sort of like to Mad Max. And obviously Mad Max Fury Road is going to be an Oscar contender this year. So I think it's it's relevant. But I wanted to, I wanted to do a David Bowie one. Uh-huh. David Bowie suggestion. Fortunately, David Bowie happened to be in a film that Nicholas Rogue directed in the late 70s called The Man Who Fell to Earth. Uh-huh. Right. Sort of late 70s Bowie playing an alien, which seems appropriate. Sort of his first film appearance. It's taken on sort of a cult 
classic status. So that's my recommendation for this week is Nicholas Rogues and David Bowie's The Man Who Fell to Earth. All right. We do have an IFK Gothenburg update. It's very important. Not much news. They're not, again, they don't kick off their Svenskakuppen defense for another few weeks. But rumor has it that their defensive midfielder and Swedish national team player Gustav Svensson may be headed to Sven Goran Eriksson's Shanghai SIPG in the Chinese Super League, Greg. Jeez. It's a blow. Shanghai. Yeah. They got a lot of cash. They, there's, there's money in China for that kind of stuff. And apparently uh, I've been informed that they rented a bit of a loss last year, which doesn't work so well for Swedish soccer teams as it does in other places. So. Mm, some guys sell, sell some assets. Yeah, not a, some not assets. a huge loss. They need, to, they need to sell some players. Yeah, just Might get impact back in the their uh, 2016 Allsvenskan Liga season. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. That's your IFK Gothenburg update for the week. I do have some plugs before we end the show. The Baseball Prospectus Annual 2016. You can pre-order it on Amazon. It was $15 and change when I looked at it this morning. There's an actual release date, February 9th. I wrote some stuff for it. Uh, mostly BP uh, Top 101 capsules along with uh, Adam McInturf and Wilson Kerman. Along the BP front as well, today was Coachella Day at Baseball Prospectus as we rolled out all our new catcher defensive metrics. Uh, all that stuff is free. There's about a dozen pieces or so, including one from me. Looking at how catcher defensive metrics line up with scouting reports for uh, current and recent Catching prospects. I got a little bit on Kevin Ploiecki in there if you're interested. I also appeared on the Good Fight Radio, our SB Nation Phillies blog, uh, last week, episode 30, talking about my Phillies prospect list at Prospectus. If you want to hear me say nice things about the Phillies, you can <laughs> you can listen to that for some reason. And I haven't plugged this on the show, and I kind of feel a little bit guilty. Um, Pitch Talks is having a, a Mets show tomorrow, Wednesday, January 13th. The Ravens Head Pub in Astoria. I am not going to be there because I have to work and I'm not on the show. But it seems like half of the Amazing Avenue staff is now going to show up because I'm not on the show. Yeah, where were they last time? Yeah, seriously. So I encourage you to check that out as well. <laughs> um, and it's always it's always a good time. It's like it's got numerous former podcast ghosts, uh, podcast guests on. The docket, and uh, anytime you get Mark Craig and Anthony to come with a couple beers and them on a panel, it's usually a show. It's, so, it's usually gold. Yeah, it is golden. So I encourage you to check that out. You check that out at PitchTalks.com. That's about it, Greg. Yep. You got anything to plug? Just uh, keep your eyes out for that prospect, that prospect list. You are you are deep in it. You're deep in the woods for this one. Yeah, yeah. It gets easier from here because I've seen more, more of these guys. Uh, as it uh, gets closer to the top, so I don't know exactly. I got to actually double check when the BP Mets list comes out. I think it's early February, so I have a little bit of time. I can finally go back and watch that Chris Flexen start, which I was supposed to watch for this week. <laughs> Man, I was so deep. You have no idea. Like my eyes was glazed. My eyes were glazing over. Hey, you got a lot of. You wear a lot of hats. I do wear a lot of hats. I'm a busy, busy boy. So I think I'm going to have a piece next week at BP about the uh, 2012 Brooklyn Cyclones rotation. Sort of how they have developed and haven't developed. So more Gabriel Yanoa stuff, obviously, but also, you know, Lee Mateo, Hansel Robles, Luis Sessa. Rainy Yuli- Lara. Rainy Lara, Julian Hilario. All those fun guys. And they're an interesting, they're an interesting test case because they all went in a wide variety. Like, everything could possibly happen to a pitching prospect happened to those six dudes <laughs> except uh perhaps becoming one of the better pitching prospects well, in the system and <laughs> sure but i mean none of them were really gonna they didn't have that profile sure they didn't really have that profile you know you know it was probably the closest mateo was like the big national guy but yeah all the national guys who were pumping him didn't see him and didn't realize it was a high effort delivery <laughs> high effort delivery and really fastball only for the most part as a 22-year-old or whatever he was in uh, in Brooklyn that year. But it's a fun yeah. class, so I'm going to look forward to writing way too many words about it for uh, Prospectus. Yeah. That'll be a good one. 
I don't know what's going to happen after that. That's, I guess I don't really plan more than a week out. But we'll be back next week with another podcast of some sort. Maybe something will happen. Hopefully. They'll sign Ioannis Suspetis for four years and $88 million. If they do that, they're going to do it in the next five minutes. That's true. It'll be shortly after we record or shortly after the show has gone up. So you'll have to hear about it next week. It's not going to happen. But if it does, <laughs> you'll hear about it next week on another edition of Amazing Avenue Audio. <laughs> <laughs>